If you have a Bible, would you go to Colossians 4? Tonight we're going to be looking at just two verses in Colossians chapter 4. This week, we're going to take a look at the last of the five identities that we've been considering in these Sunday evening messages. We've looked at worshipers, family, servants, disciples last week, and this week is witnesses. Witnesses. And really, these five identities, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago when we when we unveiled our mission statement, really, really flesh out what the mission statement is all about. We're a, we're, a, we're a gospel-centered community of worshipers. So you have worship there and family. And also servants plays into community as well. And really, disciples, the, the identity that I talked about last week, um, I'm sure you don't remember the three points of my sermon. Sometimes I don't even remember the three points of my sermons from week to week. But I, I remembered this one. You have disciples are identified with Christ obedient to Christ and fruitful for Christ. And really this, the one that we're going to look at this week, witnesses, is really just part of being a disciple. Because if you remember last week, we talked about being fruitful for Christ. That means having moral change brought about by the Holy Spirit in our lives to, to make our character more like Christ. And then also having an influence for Christ in the world, bearing fruit in that way. And so really Colossians 4 Verses 5 and 6, the two verses we're going to look at, uh, really, I think, flesh out what it means and what it looks like for us to bear fruit for Christ as his witnesses. I'm going to read the verses and then lead us in prayer, and we'll dive into this tonight. Colossians chapter 4, verse 5. Conduct yourselves wisely toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always Be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Let's pray. Father, this is a small text, very short sentence in the Bible, but it contains so much help for us and such rich instruction. Would you bless it tonight to our minds, our hearts, and our lives, our head, our heart, and our hands. May we be shaped By this text, may our lives be brought into greater conformity to it. For the glory of Jesus. Amen. John 17, when Jesus is praying for his disciples, remember that great long prayer in John 17. In verse 15, he's praying specifically for us. He has us in mind as well, not just the disciples that were in his immediate company at that time. But he asked that they would be, that we as his disciples would be sent into the world, but kept from its evil influence. So Jesus specifically prays for us to the Father that we would be a people who, is, who are engaged with the world, but yet distinct from it at the same time. He doesn't want us to either overly accommodate to the world, nor overly withdraw from the world. He wants us to live in that tension of being, as some of us have heard, in the world and not of it. He wants us to be separated spiritually from the world, but not separated spatially from the world. And that's a very, very important distinction to keep in mind. 
Jesus doesn't want us spatially separated from people. Paul doesn't want us separated spatially from people. He wants us separated spiritually from them, but not separated spatially. You know, one thing in life that really tempts me to sin is layovers. I don't like to travel generally anyway. I have a hard enough time going down Frederica without being tempted to sin, much less a long extended trip with lots of flights and lots of connections and lots of layovers. I just don't do well in those environments because I'm an American and not only am I an an American, but I'm a sinful American, which means I'm doubly impatient. And, you know, if we're not careful, we can sometimes think of Christianity as like a layover. And what I mean by that is, you know, we're saved by grace and we're called into the kingdom of God and out of the kingdom of darkness. And as we sang this morning, we live in this vain world. I don't know if that stuck out to you this morning in singing that, but really we're headed for heaven. And really while we're here, it just feels like a layover. I mean, we're, we're wasting time. We're stuck in the wrong place. We're waiting to get our flight out of town. And that sort of mentality is an overemphasis of what Jesus prayed for us. It's an overemphasis on being not of the world. We're not to be that far. Jesus doesn't want us that far. He doesn't want us in layover Christianity. But neither does he want us in native way of thinking either. You know what a native is, right? A native is someone who settles into life where they are and lives comfortably and indistinguishable from their surroundings. He doesn't want that either because that's an overemphasis on being in the world. So we have to avoid these two extremes of being layover way of thinking or native way of thinking. And he wants us in that place of tension where we are in the world, rubbing shoulders with what Paul calls outsiders here. And yet at the same time being very, specific with our goals, conducting ourselves wisely, as he says. So we're going to look at Colossians chapter four, verses five and six. And I just want to draw out five observations of the, the way in which we're to conduct ourselves toward those who don't believe, don't believe in Jesus, or perhaps the, the way in which we are conduct ourselves towards those who, um, we have reason to believe their profession is suspect. How do you how do you engage with someone who is an outsider to the Christian faith? And I think um, this text gives us a lot of help in that way. And I'm really convinced in this passage that Paul has in mind the church and our evangelistic witness. You know, if you read any modern, especially reformed literature, sometimes I just don't think they think that we're supposed to evangelize, that the church is responsible for evangelism. I mean, sometimes you, you read things like, you know, Paul was an apostle and the 12 were apostles and they, the great commission was given to them. And in some weird way, we're not to be evangelistic. It's just, it's just unheard of. It's unthinkable. But I think Paul clearly, clearly has in mind the church's responsibility and privilege, really privilege to speak the gospel to the lost. And I say that for three reasons. First, evangelism is what he has on, a, on his mind in the preceding two verses. 
Look at those. He says, continue steadfastly in prayer, Colossians 4, verse 2, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, the apostles and our, his, his apostolic team, the pioneer missionaries that were laboring alongside the apostle Paul, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. So he asked the church, please pray for us in our mission to make the gospel known and clear. And then he says, right on the heels of that, now I got a word for you about that very same thing. Because I anticipate that you too are going to be an evangelistic witness there in Colossae. So that's the first reason, I think, based upon the whole context. The context is evangelistic. He's asking for prayer for the sake of the gospel. He's asking that the Lord will open a door so that he can declare the gospel. And he's asking that he would be able to make it clear. And then he goes right on the heels of that into verse 5 and starts to instruct the church about it. Second reason I think he's talking about evangelistic witness is because he wants all of us to be fully equipped to answer each person. You notice he uses that phrase, answer each person, at the end of verse 6. But undoubtedly, the people that he has in mind is the people that he calls outsiders in verse 5. Conduct yourself wisely toward outsiders. And outsiders, it's clear in the context, is a reference to people who are outside the Christian faith, who are not yet believers in Christ, who are not a part of the church. They're on the outside of the church. And third and finally, it's interesting that the word translated speech there in verse 6, let your speech always be gracious. It's a very common Greek word, logos. It's also used in verse 3 where Paul asked that God would open a door for the word, the logos, that he'd be granted opportunities to preach the gospel. So speech and, and the gospel are tied together in this immediate context. So for those three reasons, just in this immediate context, I think he's talking to the church about our evangelistic responsibility. I think it's clear. I don't think you needed me to prove that to you, but I just wanted to share it with you by way of introduction. So let's dive in then. I want to show us five important components of conducting ourselves wisely toward outsiders. Now, let me just say this before I dive into those five. And I know he's like, Pastor Mark, just get on in. Let's go. Come on. I think this is, this is, this is helpful, though. When he calls us to conduct ourselves wisely toward outsiders, let's just step back and say, okay, the assumption is sometimes we can behave pretty stupidly, right, around people who are not yet Christians. We can behave in unwise ways. We can behave in ways that are counterproductive. We can, we can engage the, and with we can engage unbelievers in ways that are really um, in violation of the very gospel we're trying to, to bring to them. So Paul really wants us to learn how to model and shape our, the way we interact with outsiders or unbelievers um, in a way that reflects the very gospel that we're preaching to them. So he wants our conduct to be consistent with our confession. He wants the words that are coming out of our mouths to match the conduct of our lives. That's so, so important to the apostle Paul because it's so, so important to Jesus. So let's, let's dive in then specifically and see the ways in which we can conduct ourselves wisely as witnesses for Christ. First, be wise, be wise. Now, 
I think that's clear when he says in verse 5, conduct yourselves wisely or in wisdom. And I think at least two things are in view here when Paul calls us to be wise in the way that we conduct ourselves towards outsiders. I think of Matthew 7, 6. Remember that passage where Jesus says, do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. So wisdom requires that we be incredibly discerning as to when we speak and to whom we speak. Sometimes we need to be very bold and forthright in our declaration of the gospel. And sometimes on other occasions, because of perhaps a calloused heart or a hostile posture, we need to keep our mouth shut. I think that's what wisdom is all about. Here's how John Piper defines wisdom. I think it's helpful and I can't do much better than just to quote him directly. So let me give you John Piper's definition of wisdom here. Wisdom is knowing what to do for the glory of God when the rule book runs out. It's knowing how to become all things to all men without compromising holiness and truth. It is creativity and tact and thoughtfulness. It's having a feel for the moment and having an eye for what people need and want. That's wisdom. And if we, if we, if we need an example of wisdom and how to interact with outsiders, I can commend to you no greater example than our Savior himself. You read the Gospels and you see the wisdom with which he was, he was able to deal with unbelievers. Hostility at times. And he just knew at, at different moments what the right thing to say was or right, what, the, what the wrong thing would, to say would have been. And so the way that we grow in wisdom is not by me giving you five principles and saying, okay, in this situation, church, don't ever say that. Or in this situation, don't ever do that. It's me saying, get to know Jesus. Walk with Jesus. Listen to him, pay attention to him, especially as you read the gospels, see how he interacts and pray that God would give you wisdom and grow you in that grace. And that's, that's the way we cultivate wisdom is by being close to wisdom himself. So Paul calls us to consider and to conduct ourselves wisely toward outsiders. So we got to be wise. We got to know when to speak. We got to know when the right time to speak is. And so often that's a struggle for us is knowing when the time to speak is. Because if we, if we, we, we have to believe that there's time to speak and time not to speak. Otherwise, why in the world would Paul pray and ask the church to pray here that God would open a door, right? He wants God to open the door, not him kick the door down, right? So we have to be patient. We have to be prayerful. We have to be watchful. But at the same time, we have to be wise. We have to be wise. Now, I understand that sometimes we can hide behind wisdom as cowardice. And we can be cowards. And we can't, we, we, we're saying, well, it wouldn't be wise right then. But really, it's just a lack of boldness on our part. Or other times, we you know, lack the kind of tact and the person may be very hostile and we just say, okay, well, here's the truth. Take it and swallow it. 
and that's not wise either. So we got to be wise. That's the first principle. Second, we got to be intentional. We got to be intentional. Where do I get that from? I get that from verse five, conduct yourselves wisely toward outsiders, comma, making the best use of the time, making the best use of the time. I think that means be intentional. You know, the ESV renders the phrase, making the best use of the time. And some of the older translations, maybe you have one like the King James would say, redeeming the time, redeem it. And I think a lot of commentators do a good job of highlighting what Paul's trying to emphasize here. For instance, Peter O'Brien calls this snapping up every opportunity that comes, snapping up those opportunities, looking for those opportunities and snapping them up or Murray Harris is even more to the point. He says, in the open market where the, the, where the commodity of time is on sale, Christians are to make a timely purchase for themselves. Redeem it, purchase it, buy it. In other words, Harris says, Christians are to eagerly seize and use wisely every opportunity afforded them by time to promote the gospel to promote the gospel. So we have to be intentional. We can't waste opportunities that come our way or squander the chance to speak boldly through an open door in the heart of an unbeliever. Every encounter that we have with another person who is not yet a Christian has potential to be soul saving. Think about that. Every, I mean, every opportunity that has the potential to be soul saving potential. And we have to be thinking like that. We have to be thinking like that. We have to be alert to that. You say, how do you, how do you determine, how do you cultivate that level of alertness? Well, I heard it said one time, and I think it's a wise statement that I forget who said it. It could have been Francis Schaeffer or someone else, but he said, you know, if you had an hour with an unbeliever, uh, how would you spend that hour? He said, I'd spend 55 minutes of that conversation, asking them questions and then five minutes presenting the gospel to that specific area of need that I perceived. Another person said, I work my, I work my way around the rim of someone's life until I find a crack. That's, that's being intentional. It's understanding. Okay. We all kind of carry around this mask and wear this mask of, you know, perfection and no problems. And we try to protect that image and before other people, but sooner or later, a person's foundation starts to crumble and their life starts to fall apart. And it's in those moments that they become vulnerable, more vulnerable And when that vulnerability starts to show up, there's your cue. There's your cue. And you start to say, okay, in what, what, how, in what way is this person's life being cracked open right now? And how does Jesus speak to that? And so I think that's what it means to be intentional. Every encounter has the potential to be soul saving. And we don't let fear or a lack of preparation steal that moment from us. We work our way around the rim of a person's life until we find a crack and we make the best use of that time when we see it. And we try to address, um, address them with the gospel in that moment. 
So that would be a second one is be intentional. We have to cultivate a gospel intentionality about our relationships. We have to be looking for those opportunities and praying for those opportunities and ready when they show up. And even if we're not clear if it's an opportunity, we should at least push on the door to see if God's going to open it. Third is to be gracious. We need to be gracious. So be wise, be intentional, be gracious. Notice what Paul says at the beginning of verse 6. Let your speech always be gracious. Always. There is never a time in our interaction with an outsider in which our speech can become ungracious. We always, always must let our speech be gracious. Now, what does that mean? That means we are to be as winsome, as loving, as compassionate, yes, as charming as possible without crossing the line into compromise. We are to be accommodating and kind, not at the expense of truth, but we are to have a disposition of kindness and warmth and gentleness and grace toward people. So what, man, what really matters is not simply the content of what we're saying, but the manner or spirit in which we speak of Christ to others. That is oh so critical. We are to be, the way Sam Storm says it, we are to be both pointed and pleasant. We are to, there's to be a directness to our speech and yet a graciousness and a kindness and a warmth and a pleasantness to our, to our witness as well. And all too often, even myself, we can be tempted to embrace one to the exclusion of another. We can either be too pointed, being like a bull in a china shop, or we can be too pleasant, finding it difficult to embrace both. Either way, we can care too much for the truth or we can care nothing for the truth. And so we're afraid of sounding offensive or pushy and we fail to articulate the things we need to articulate about sin and death and hell and the wrath of God and holiness and all of that. So Paul wants us to be gracious. He wants us to be pointed, but he wants us to be pleasant as well. So we got to be wise. We got to be intentional. We got to be gracious. Fourthly, we got to be salty. We got to be salty. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, seasoned with salt. So our our proclamation of the mystery of Christ, of the gospel, must be seasoned with salt. There, there has to be a level of savoring going on in the way that we speak of Christ in the gospel. It's no virtue, brothers and sisters, to be dull or insipid or lukewarm in the way we present the gospel to someone. And here's, here's, one, here's the way one person put it. He said, according to the old, this is, uh, this is Howard Hendricks, a professor at, at Dallas Seminary. He said, according to the old adage, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. That's true. He said, but you can feed him salt. You can feed him salt. Yeah, we can't, we can't make people become Christians. We can't, we can't change the heart. 
We can't regenerate a soul. We can't raise someone from deadness and sin. But we can talk about Jesus in a way that people wish it was true, even if they don't believe it. We can, we can talk about Jesus in a way that makes people's souls thirst. We can, with our words and with our manner, create the opportunity for spiritual thirst, perhaps to emerge in a person's heart. The psalmist said in Psalm 34, verse eight, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Do, do you in your interaction with that, this has been one of the most, I believe the most helpful ways that I have been able to gain, gain traction with some of my unbelieving friends is by talking about what Jesus means to me and what difference he makes in my life. Why he even matters to me personally. What, what difference does he make? What practical difference does a man who is the son of God come to earth, lived a perfect life, died on the cross, rose from the dead? What practical difference do all those historical facts make for you on Monday morning or when you're discouraged or when you're undergoing a trial or when you're experiencing a season of great joy and blessing? What difference does he make? What difference does he make in our lives? And I think that, that kind of talk is salty talk. It's really salty talk. It's, it's the kind of talk that, that makes people long for something. Boy, I wish I had what you had. Boy, I wish, you know, it's, it's that kind of talk. And that's what Paul's getting at, I think, here is bring to bear in the conversation the difference that Christ makes. Not just that he made, but that he makes now. So they can see that this is, this is an ongoing reality. It's not just some thing that I believed back when I got, you know, before I was baptized and became a Christian. It, it's like, no, it's like it, this, this, matter, this, is, this is what matters today and why it makes a difference today. So we should be able to, to say to people, and they should be able to get a sense that Jesus really is precious and sweet to us. That we find in him something worth commending. That he's altogether lovely to us. And therefore, he should not be made known in an unloving or unappealing way. So that's being salty. Being salty. Fifthly and finally... Let's talk about the last observation here, which is being personal. So we've seen be wise, be intentional, be gracious, be salty. Finally, be personal. Paul says at the end of verse six, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So we must be diligent to answer, to answer each each person it's we're not to treat people as vague sinners right we're not to treat them as yes the gospel is one size fits all but the only problem is is there's not or i shouldn't say it's a problem 
But that doesn't mean that we have a one-size-fits-all approach. We're not dealing with a one-size-fits-all person. We're dealing with a person who has a unique life with a unique history. And we need to be wise and personal in the way that we communicate the gospel to them. We are, to, we are not just to speak in the same way to everyone, like with some canned presentation, but we are to speak appropriately to each person as he or she has need. We must be perceptive and provide answers that are discerning in accordance with the unique circumstance of that individual. Not everyone will hear the gospel in the same way, even though it's the same gospel that they will hear or that we're trying to help them hear. Some people will encounter Christ with probing intellectual objections. They'll have real intellectual problems with, Christ, with Christianity. And they need thoughtful, deliberate, helpful, biblical answers. But not everyone is struggling with the intellectual claims of the Christian faith. Some people are struggling with the moral claims. Or they're struggling with deeply entrenched sinful habits. And it has not, really nothing to do with the mind. So I'm, am I saying that we don't try to communicate the gospel through the mind? No, I'm not violating what Pastor Jonathan preached this morning. I'm saying that we understand the person and what the nature of their struggles are. And that takes time. I mean, it's much easier for me just to go track bomb somebody. You know, here, read this. Let me know what you think. You know, rather than trying to understand them and spend time with them I mean, why does the, why do the gospels give us so much backstory on people when you read the gospels? I mean, why was it important that we knew that she had the blood flow for that long? <laughs> I mean, that seems like an unnecessary detail. We don't, we don't, that's her story. That's where she's, that's what we're to empathize with her struggle that she's had that for that long and that, that gets inserted. So Jesus never treats people as, you know, sinner A, sinner B, sinner C, sinner D. There they all are. No, they've got names. They got histories. They got particular backgrounds, same gospel need. And so our evangelism, brothers and sisters, and our witnessing must never become monolithic. It must never become one-dimensional with this one particular mode or manner of presentation that's suitable for everyone. Yes, each is in need of the same Savior and the same forgiveness of their sin, no doubt. And there is but one Savior, and his name's Jesus. But each person is also in a unique and perhaps challenging phase of life, facing their own unique set of trials and troubles. And they each have varying degrees of understanding of who Jesus is and what he accomplished. And they have various and, you know, more or less difficult understandings of how that makes any difference to them. So we must be personal. We must be intentional, wise, gracious, and salty. I just, I, I love the balance 
of this text for us. I love, I love how helpfully it, I think, equips us to be witnesses in the manner in which we're to do it. So what areas tonight do you feel like you need the most development in of these? Do you feel like I just need, I mean, of course we all, we all need growth and wisdom, but think about these. You need wisdom. You need to be more intentional. You need to be more gracious. You need to be more salty. You need to be more personal. Think about that. And let's pray through some of those things. If we have time here at the end of our service tonight and pray that the Lord will shape us and help us to be um, the wise witnesses that he would cause us, call, uh, call us to be in this passage. So let's pray together. Father, we, we pause to thank you um, that we have news to tell. We thank you that the gospel that we have to preach is not a gospel of good advice. It's not a gospel of do this and God will love you. But rather we have, a, we have news to tell. We have good news of a willing Savior, of a powerful Savior. We have good news of grace and forgiveness. We offer a Savior who says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. And I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. That's the sort of savior we, we commend and we know. So we thank you for him. Father, would you make us to be a church that is aligned to this passage of scripture? Would you bring our lives in sync with it? That we would be a people who not only prays for open doors for the gospel, but is wise and intentional and gracious and salty and personal when they come. Please help us to conduct ourselves wisely, to really, to, to really have depth of friendship with unbelievers so that we can speak to them in a way that rings out, of the, rings out with friendship and love and not just cold distance. Lord, would you help us to be what this text embodies for your glory, for our good, and for the fame and glory of Jesus Christ and the advancement of his gospel. In his name we ask it. Amen. Let's stand again and sing to that Savior.